Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. The audio in this episode depicts real life violent events and may be disturbing for some listeners. Discretion is advised. On a warm night in April, Jaleel Shands and his longtime girlfriend were walking around the old city neighborhood. It was just about 9.30, and they were leaving dinner at Budokan, a popular Asian fusion restaurant, steps away from Independence Hall. And suddenly... People were dining outside. Really a shocking thing to happen about 9.30 last night. Police say the 25-year-old victim was walking with his girlfriend here. Cops say at least 27 shots were fired. And the man died on the scene. And the, the girlfriend, though, was not hit. Uh, police say I was hearing my daughter at my front door crying, banging on the door. So as I run to the door, she's right there crying and said they shot Jalil. My granddaughter called me at work. And said so they killed Jalil, and it was just like, I said, what? I'm like, what are you talking about? So it was like devastating. I just started screaming, crying. He's not a savage animal. You don't do that to someone. Just turned 25. Three or four gunmen for one person. As his aunt is like, I hope it was instant. So he's not in any pain. But when I found out it wasn't instant, you know, that made it worse for me. You know, like... Nobody wants their, their family member to be in that kind of pain. Jaleel Shands, the beloved son, nephew, and grandson, dead at the age of 25, shot and killed in front of the woman he loved. Gun violence continues to plague cities across the country. In Philadelphia, people are shot every day. Police say an unidentified man walked in the store, got a gun out, and fired at least five shots. Around noon, a 26-year-old man was shot several times. Witnesses described the scene where multiple shooters opened fire as children ran away. One gunshot can reverberate through a neighborhood, a city, and can have a lasting impact on communities. This is a situation where it has to happen to you. You can say how hurt you are, how much you're going to miss the person, but... You don't feel it until you, it actually happens to you. Families have been torn apart. I just want all of them to feel the same pain that we feel every day that we feel it. We're missing a piece. 
our puzzle is not fully together anymore. Over the past five years, we've gathered interviews and stories from victims and their families, suspects, and defendants. Do they have love for anybody? That crabs in a barrel mentality, you know, whatever mm. I got to do to survive. And people on the front lines of the violence. People right. in the communities are screaming, where are you? Parenting stress is different than parenting racial stress. If I worry that I just send my kid down to the store that something could happen, not everybody has that burden. How does one gunshot ripple through a community? What role do race, grief, and toxic masculinity play? Is there a solution? From Gone Cold, I'm Kristen Johansson. This is Ricochet. Him and his girlfriend was coming out of Budokan. Three or four guys was waiting in the car, not too far. And when they got there, they jumped out the car and shot him. Budokan is an old city, a tourist spot in Philadelphia. It's where the Declaration of Independence was signed, where a pope and several presidents have spoken to crowds, where the Philly Pops have performed countless concerts, and where schools from all over the country bring their students to learn about American history. Seemingly safe, crime sometimes amounts to stolen purses or bar brawls. Restaurants, music venues, and bars attract 20-somethings, including Jaleel Shands and his high school sweetheart on a date. He wasn't perfect, but he was my son. I sat with Jaleel's family, his father Khalil, his grandmother Robin, and his aunt Angela about a year after his death. He had a, a huge heart, a drive to do a lot of things. Jaleel and his girlfriend had been together six years. They went out to eat all the time. They also, he loved to travel. Him and his girlfriend went many, many places. They've been to California, Puerto Rico. Of course, they've been to Miami together, Vegas. So he liked to get outside of Philadelphia, you know, and experience new things. After years together with a proposal likely on the way, she watched her beloved Jaleel killed in front of her. Myself, his mother, and my oldest daughter drove to the scene. It was very unorganized. I don't know who was in charge at the time. All we were doing was just sitting there waiting while the police were, I mean, maybe half a block down. And his body was still there. He was covered, but his body was still there. Everybody else, reporters and everybody else can go down, but the family couldn't even go down. So, you know, it was almost like we were outsiders in that situation as if he wasn't our family. Honestly, I was numb for that whole night. When they finally moved him, they told us to go to some morgue or something. We were not able to identify him. We weren't able to see him because of the, the pandemic. Um, it was closed, so we was calling this number. They told us to call. We had to run around for all that night just trying to, you know, verify that it was him to see his body. But we didn't get to see his body until, actually, I don't, I don't remember, at the funeral home, maybe the day before the funeral. But they did um, send us a picture of his face. Um, and I think they had his ID. They sent up a picture of his ID or something like that. This happened to many, many families. In the midst of the pandemic, the city's health department set certain guidelines for all they oversee, including the medical examiner and the doctors who perform autopsies. Many families were left confused and panicked because they didn't know if the person they loved was in the morgue or if it was a case of mistaken identity. It was a different level of trauma, unavoidable, I don't know. He wanted to be a manager, a music manager, so he wanted to manage artists. So he took on his friends, you know, as his starting point. So he loved music. 
music. He loved sports. He loved his family. He loved his friends. Um, he was very loyal. We traveled together a lot. Our favorite spot is Miami. We would go to Miami. Leading up to the the service, you know, I think everybody had their moments. Everybody was hurting, but it, it wasn't made real until that moment. And then we got even closer because, like you say, after the dust settles, the family still is going through where everybody else has already moved on to the next thing, you know, and we're still going through it daily, but we lean on each other so that way we can be better and we can, we can heal and, you know, we're never going to be okay with it, but we'll be able to get to the, through the day easier than yesterday because we have each other. This is a situation where it has to happen to you. You can say how hurt you are, how much you're going to miss the person, but you don't feel it until you, it actually happens to you. You know, somebody in your, in your life, you know, somebody that you love no longer around. We're missing a piece. There's a void. Sometimes it makes you not want to do certain stuff that we used to do. Family dinners and things like that, because it's like, we already know we, we're going to cry. We already know we're going to have our moments in those moments. Because when he walked in and that smile and, you know, him cracking jokes and playing with the family and things like that, you know, we're going to miss that. Our puzzle is not fully together anymore. So life has been hard for us. They pull out pamphlets and pictures and T-shirts they had made in honor of Jaleel. His big smile and cheeks, bright eyes looking straight into the camera as if he's about to say something cheerful. Everybody loved him. He was just that type of person. He was so jovial and so, you know, that's just who he was. We get hear stories about him from people that we don't even know, that he's impacted. People who contacted me from Alabama, from Texas, from Atlanta, who reached out to me and say, I'm sorry, he was just a good person. A lot of my hurt is that his effect on other people, when I see that, it just, it just makes me. Mm. He affected so many people, and, and it hurt so many people by him dying. Jaleel's story made me think of something Bill Fritzy with the Gun Violence Task Force said. We always want to say it's the nuclear family breakdown, but it, it isn't quite that here. It's something more where our kids need something at a very young age. And I think they're seeing things that their parents don't realize. They're seeing violence, and I think that violence is doing something to their brains that is causing them to then fall into these groups. Jaleel was loved, appreciated, called his grandmothers often, and spent a lot of time with his family. And we learned more about his past. Jaleel had been arrested before, all nonviolent. We know that he was arrested with a few other members of a gang inside of a stolen car with two guns and more than two dozen rounds of ammunition. The gang police believe he belonged to has ongoing feuds with two other gangs. We won't name them because the one thing members love is notoriety. But from all the people we've spoken to, if you live in certain neighborhoods and you don't belong to something, some group, you are as much of a target as if you do. Jaleel had never been arrested for a shooting, never accused of any violence, but he did spend some time behind bars, and there were two previous incidents before his death. A week after Jaleel was released from prison, he was shot, but survived. Then three months before his death, police believed he was the intended target of another homicide, the killing of 17-year-old Dreon Hart in North Philly. Both Dreon and Jaleel's cases remain unsolved. Jaleel's family is frustrated by that. We have these cameras that can tell us we're going too fast. We have these cameras that can tell us we're um, ran a red light. We have these machines that can tell us, oh, this car need a boot. 
Right. But we can't solve a murder. Mm -hmm. We can't. We don't have a camera that can solve a murder. For his dad, he's not sure if the answers would help. It's not going to change nothing. I'm not saying I have peace, but that's not going to help much because he's still not here. There were three gunmen, four in the car, one as the getaway driver. It's hard for the entire family to understand how a group like that would wait for their prey to emerge, boldly pounce in a neighborhood filled with tourists, families, and high-end restaurants and bars. I'm wondering if, if they are loved or do they love anybody? You know, how do you go out and do all these things, kill all these people? Do you have family? You is, do, yeah, how you sleep at night? How about this is somebody that you, that's dear that to you happens to you? How would you feel? As we're speaking, Angela's daughter walks in. She's been in the back playroom watching cartoons as we talk about the bullets that killed her cousin. The little one is six years old, bright-eyed, wearing a Disney princess top. Hi. Hi. Can I see your T-shirt? You look so cool. She's an amazing kid. So, you know, for a while, we didn't say anything. We didn't say a word, you know. We'll go visit his gravesite, and a couple times she went with me and my mom. Um, my mom always changes the flowers on what she calls his bed. She don't like to use gravesite, so she said, "His, you know, we changed the flowers on his bed. And, you know, my daughter likes to help. She knows what it is. She knows that's where, you know, people who've, who've gone to heaven are. So when we're there, she, she don't ask any questions at all whatsoever. She just wants to help, you know. The dirt up. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I was on the phone or if I had, someone was over and we were talking about my nephew. We didn't say his name per se, but we were saying, you know, him not being here and how that affected us. And she says, who, Jalu? She knew the whole time. She like, I didn't have to say anything. She's resilient, you know. She she doesn't fully understand, but she understands that he's not here. You know, she knows that that's, that's her cousin. And anytime I'm having a moment, she'll come and give me a hug and say, Mommy is going to be okay. You know, so she she knows, but she's, you know, she's six. You know, just yesterday, I drove through a neighborhood that I grew up in. I've never had so much anxiety. But now it's like you could just be driving and minding your own business and end up in between crossfire. You just never know. And it makes it's sad because it makes you not want to go back to where you were, where you grew up at, you know, where you once were safe and you felt comfortable. Now it's like, oh, my God, I don't even want to drive down there no more. You know, and, and it sucks. Well, I was sitting there speaking to the Shans family, three generations of them. I asked if they know others who have been lost to gun violence. Not like this close or this personal. You know, it may be a family friend or somebody that we know that it happened to, but never in our family. But this is tragic and unexpected. When I was younger than them, there was some killing and stuff, but not like it is now. They didn't have guns then. Most of the time they, they would just fight with their hands or uh, maybe a bat or something. But, you know... It's nothing, nowhere like it is now. Yeah. It was just hands and that yeah. was it. It was yeah, like, okay, not, let's not, yeah, let's resolve this conflict and keep it. It was never lost of life. Back then my brother used to call it gang war and stuff, but it's nothing like what they're they doing now. Here's another thing about um, gang wars. Back then, women and children were off limits. Now there is none. They're shooting anybody and everybody. They don't care. When I was coming up, it was more so about the corners and the drugs and the money. If you just, you know, mind your business, you was fine. Now, you can, if you mind your business, you're still not fine. We'll be right back. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to ricochet. All exits are clearly marked with an exit sign. Please take a moment to find an exit closest to you. When you get on an airplane, the flight attendants give instructions about when to put on oxygen masks. Place the mask over your nose and mouth. They will always say to put your oxygen mask on first before you pull a mask over a child or anyone else. Be sure to adjust your own mask before helping others. It's because you need to be okay before you can help others. But what if you never get the chance to help yourself? How can you help a child? If you think about how we daily use our our hearing, our emotions, our thinking, our, our movement to make sense of the world, all of those things can be affected by experiences that turn into trauma because we didn't expect it was going to happen. Dr. Howard Stevenson and Dr. Caroline Watts are psychologists at the University of Pennsylvania. I direct the Racial Empowerment Collaborative, um, which is a center that focuses on how to teach children, families, neighborhoods, um, community leaders about racial literacy. I'm a psychologist who has spent my 30-plus year career building partnerships between low-resource public schools and high-leverage institutions like universities and hospitals. We've often heard race, poverty, and trauma contribute to gun violence. I sat with Dr. Watts and Dr. Stevenson to discuss how. You may hear gunshots, but you don't necessarily connect these very tragic moments or dangerous moments to harm or to pain. One question you want to know is how does someone learn that something actually is painful or uh, detrimental to life or limb? And that's a learning process. If you're a kid growing up in a section of the city with extreme levels of gun violence, it impacts you differently every time. So the more exposure I have to dangerous events, the more likely I'm going to get a lesson over time. And if I'm three, that's a different lesson than if I'm seven than if I'm 10 or 15. They say it's not the specific event that matters. So when we say, oh, that's so traumatic, it's how people feel, what they think, how they respond to that event that can make it traumatic. The degree to which this becomes more problematic for us as human beings varies by how early this event may have occurred, whether this was a chronic, repeated kind of stressor or whether it was a one-time thing. 
and it's how the adults around children respond. If we're a young child and something out of the ordinary and upsetting happens, but our caregivers are able to respond by wrapping around us and helping us to feel safe and secure, and that stressor can go away, that's very different than when we have, for example, communities that are wiped out by sudden storms where all of the ordinary, comforting, familiar settings and relationships we have are gone. Mm -hmm. Or, as we're experiencing right now in Philadelphia, when whole communities are now dealing with day-to-day episodes of violence and death and grief. When shootings repeatedly happen over and over in the same neighborhoods with little support, it can be incredibly harmful for people who live there. I think anyone who's been through a traumatic experience needs to have their experience heard, listened to, valued, and validated. People need people who they can share with and trust they won't be judged for their emotions about whatever the thing is that they're handling. That goes for adults Mm -hmm. and for kids. So we see parents right now extremely upset and scared for their children. And parents are struggling to make sense of this and help their kids feel safe and also help their kids feel like they can do the normal things about just being a kid and being in the world. Dr. Stevenson says they have an adult group session where it takes parents a few sessions before they can talk about themselves and not their kids. And what that means is I may not notice my pain. I don't have practice at finding out how I feel. You know, I've just got to take care of them. And so the mask on the airplane, oxygen mask on the airplane, is a great example of how we try to teach your kids are going to get more if you take care of you. But that's not an easy thing to do when you've been traumatized. He also studied how barbershops work similar to therapy. We can bring trauma resources and strategies even to unconventional, non-traditional spaces. If you go to a barbershop, you'll find that some men stay all day and never get a haircut because they can talk about their lives. They talk about their sexual lives. They talk about their struggles. They talk about uh, fights they've had with partners. And they get feedback from people that they don't want to hear from and from people they do. But that's therapy, too, if you understand, Mm -hmm. right? It's cultural. It's stylistic. I trust these dudes because they make me look good when I leave here. Race can also play a major role in violence. Part of the issue is if you start the analysis only in the last year around the stats on violence, but you don't look at the last five years of how many protective factors are missing compared to other neighborhoods, do you get a real understanding of not only um, wealth differences, but racial differences. But we also have done studies on what it's like to worry if your child leaves you that they will be harmed because of their race. It affects your sleep. It affects your heart health. It affects your eating habits. Parenting stress is different than parenting racial stress, right? If I worry that I just send my kid down to the store that something could happen, not everybody has that burden. We can do something about it if we talk about it and identify, but we can't just say general stress as a parent is a way to understand. I need to hear your specific story. And sometimes people can understand, you know, I do worry about my kids, but I don't worry that a policeman is going to hurt them. Every kid grows up differently with a different perspective of what makes them feel safe or frightened. 
it's hard to talk about trauma and what kids are going through and safety without talking about the lack of those protective factors. Mm -hmm. Like, where can I go that I can talk about what I'm scared about? Mm -hmm. Where can mother go and talk about what she's scared about? We ran a project called Play called Preventing Long-Term Anger and Aggression at Youth, and it was focusing on violence of all types. And these were for African-American boys. The boys would talk about all the time what they need to do to protect themselves, right? Because as much as parents are doing their best to protect them, they feel helpless. The boys knew their, their parents were helpless. So I know my mother loves me, but the bigger issue is she can't protect me. And so you have masculinity dynamics mm-hmm. interacting with this sense of safety. And in a stereotypical world, toxic masculinity seems almost like a good option if you think that's going to protect you. When we spoke with Andrea Robinson about her son, who was nicknamed Shooter, she brought up that her son had to be the tough guy. I have taught my sons that you have to be strong and courageous and bold and and outspoken. And and is it right? Probably not, because why he can't be who God created him to be? And so that's our fear as a parent, that somebody's going to run over top of our sons. Uptown also mentioned this when I spoke with him. We grew up in a time where people was using guns. You know, a lot of us did things out of fear. A lot of the kids uh, go take a gun and shoot at somebody because they're really scared of them. Kids, adolescents, adults are at times taking actions because, you know, this is what I see other people doing to keep them safe. I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm doing it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't like a gun, but I'm bringing a gun to class because this other kid in school told me he's going to shoot me at recess. And that's where, to a certain degree, a purely disciplinary response, whether it's by the legal system or by parenting system, starts to break down. It needs to be more uh, nuanced than that. If we bring those protective factors, though, we can change the dynamic. I'll give you one example. A young man in our group work, uh, we use basketball, group therapy, and racial literacy to have kids tell their stories. He he told the group um, that another kid was going to kill him. And he was worried that on his way to school it was going to happen. We said, could you try going down another road, another street on your way to school? He said, no way. There's it, 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 no way I could do that. And his friend said, no, he can't do that. He'll be called out. So we felt helpless. We found out five weeks later that he decided not to go down the street. The situation moved away. Both Dr. Watts and Dr. Stevenson say, All boys were considered nice at some point in their lives. They were children, vulnerable, impressionable, looking for love. They never stopped being children because their neighborhoods were dangerous. They had to become, develop a coping strategy that had to deal with the reality that Caroline was talking about. I'm not safe. My family's not safe. So I can't just be a kid in this context. But they need the same kind of supports that other kids get when they come to crisis, when they come to stressful moments where they have options. Violence may be on the table, but what if I also walk down another street? What if I also ask for help? The benefit of participating in sports or an after-school activity can be less about the activity itself and more about being in a group with your peers, sharing experiences of losing friends and family or being shot at. The Shans family is trying to cope, leaning on each other. And Robin has found some comfort in talking with Jaleel's other grandmother. They know what each other is going through. 
we talk, we cry together, <laughs> we do all that. Therapy. That's yeah, my group. Th- my family is my group therapy. Yeah. Like Angela said, we can, you know, you can just start crying. Everybody know what you're crying. Yeah, you know, right. sometimes it hits you the worst times. Like I went to work the other day. One day this week, was it Tuesday? I walk in, drop my bag and stuff. And the girls are asking, we talking, asking me questions. All of a sudden, I have no clue. I was just feeling it from the time I woke up. I mean, they talk about why you apologize. Because I just, I just started crying. I just had to go in the bathroom and get myself together. During our conversation about gun violence and sharing some of the stories about what I've seen and experienced in court and during my job, Robin asked me this. How did you get through all this? <laughs> I mean, Great no, question. seriously. It's got to be hard. I nervously laughed it off at first, but I've been asked this countless times as a crime reporter. Taking a moment here as we wrap up this series. Everything I do, day in and day out, is because of the resilience of all who are fighting against violence. Those who have been affected in any way by the violence. Those standing up and trying to create change, trying to bring peace or justice or healing. You are the ones who have taught me to stay focused and do the work. Share the stories. These are not my stories. This is not my pain. This is the pain of the people, like the Shans family, affected every day and forever. And I will sit with them in their grief and allow them to share because I have the microphone and they need answers. There's a club no one wants to belong to. Mothers who have lost their children to gun violence in Philadelphia. Help us help save our children. They call themselves Mothers Bonded by Grief. This is overwhelming to mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters. This is overwhelming. How do you go leave out your house for work in the morning and not knowing if you're going to come back home at night because there's too many guns on these streets? Um, He was shot four times on the 400 block of Hoffman Street. Terrell was a father of three. I lost my daughter to a single gunshot wound to the left side of her upper chest. Um, These moms sometimes gather in highly public places where they can memorialize their children and call attention to the city's gun violence. The system needs to be fixed. Marge Dillon's son, Ryan, was 17 years old when he was killed May 25th of 2018. It was a week before his 18th birthday. I catch myself just staring at people. Are you the one that killed my son? D'Amica Brown's son, Tyrell Arnold Jr., was 25 years old, a father of three, killed on September 29th of 2020 after dropping his daughter off to her mother. Someone he knew. This is someone he knew. This is still unsolved. He was trying to find himself, and had done done things he wasn't proud of. He had a dream, he had a vision. He had a clothing line a couple years back, but he really wanted to bring that back. And you know, it was that light bulb that went off that I really gotta do something better. I got three kids. And we literally, that weekend before, had just had a conversation. Mom, I'm out the way. I'm not doing none of those things. I refuse to let them take me from my children. Shonda McClellan lost her daughter, Erica, in November of 2017. Erica was my baby daughter out of seven. She She tells me it was one of her daughter's friends who pulled the trigger. We went to court. 
what they thought was justice wasn't justice because she served less than two years. She got out within 23 months. She was released. In the beginning, you get all these, you know, you get all these politicians that want you to come out to these marches and this and the other. But I've learned that you're using our pain for your photo op because you don't really care. You don't care. So, you know, that's why we didn't make this known to the public or sit with a politician because y'all just going to use our pain. And then what you going to do after that photo op is over? You know, they just gave out all this money to all these nonprofits in the city for gun violence. But how many do you really see that's doing the legwork or pushing, you know, hitting a sidewalk? It's so much money that's given out to people in this city. But what are they doing with it? These women, all the mothers, fathers, grandparents, siblings, uncles, and aunts are in pain. They will live with the wound from the gunshot that killed their loved one for the rest of their lives. When we first started pulling together interviews and information for this series, Philadelphia was in the midst of record high gun violence. While the number of shooting victims has gone down from 2021's peak, There were still 373 people shot to death in 2023. Now, there's a new mayor, new police commissioner, some new city council members. But the call is the same. Stop the violence. It's deep, complex, and may take time. How many years have we allowed guns to flow into our city? How many years have we not worked with people who have and realized that young kids witnessing a shooting probably need a little more follow-up? How many years have we, like, neglected the family? How many years have there been poverty issues? Right? We're tackling it now. We're trying to. There's so much more work that has to be done, and we have to be focused on it. We have to continue it. We have to start working together, but we need more time. And that's, that's the only thing that's going to help us. This series is dedicated to all Philadelphia shooting victims and all the victims of unsolved murders that we've highlighted here on Gone Cold with a special note of memory for Jason Richardson, the first victim we've highlighted on the podcast. He was a son, brother, uncle, nephew, grandson, and friend, a known peacemaker who was trying to stop a fight inside of a bar when someone stabbed him in the heart in October of 2004. We think of Jason and his family often and hope answers will come someday for them and for all the victims we've highlighted. This series is produced and audio edited by Sabrina boyd Circa with assistance from Winston Harris. A special thanks to KWW brand manager Christina Coppicer, our podcast director Tom Rickert, and Odyssey's managing producer of national news podcast Myron Kaplan. And to the many voices throughout this series, including reporters Tim Jimenez, Nina Barati, Shara Day Howard, and the rest of our colleagues who contributed including our digital production team, Rachel Curlin and Holly Stevens. A special note of appreciation for everyone who shared their story or perspective over the years to create this piece. We are forever grateful. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.